Sasha Nagler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, this is exciting. This is, I think, almost a year in the making. <laughs> Feels like it. Yeah. yeah. And so, so perhaps a little, we need to rewind the tape and mm -hmm. give some context. Uh, so a while ago, you were a student of mine when I taught world history in yes. the middle school. Yes. And... Uh, and I think what's going to be cool about this is you have a really unique insight. You're a millennial. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a Generation Xer. And we're going to be talking about this provocative topic and phenomenon called irony poisoning. But before we jump into that, I think a little bit of background might be useful. So you have relatively recently graduated from college, mm -hmm. which I think gives you not only a unique insight into this phenomenon, um, in addition to being uh, a millennial. So what is the background that you think is relevant? Um, so I went to school for sociology. I found it when I was at community college and I immediately loved it for how we're all interconnected. Yeah. Um, psychology as well, but sociology was very much how we're all the same. And um, so I did that and then I transferred to UC Santa Barbara and I got my bachelor's in sociology and coming out of college, I was an EMT and I just resonated really well with my psych patients and I realized I was really intrigued with human behavior and so I sought out more information for that and this depth psychology um, and I fell in love with Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud and their work yeah. and the self and the ego that we construct and I dove into yoga and meditation and really went inward um, to discover who I was and wanted to give that to uh, a broader audience. Um, so I will be going to school in the spring um, to get my master's in mental health counseling and then marriage and family therapy. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me and my interest in this, but um, very intrigued with human behavior yeah. and um, the veil of separation between us and sociology right. really lifted that and how um, we're all part of one yeah. and the more we see that the more you know things are going to get done and we'll be able to connect so that's what we're hardwired for right. and we crave that is to belong to a tribe and people so yeah I, I know I know what I found and I'm, I'm still trying to you know, explore more and just very curious and I want other people to ask these questions. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. I remember when we, uh, when our paths crossed and immediately I could sense that you were very interested in examined life. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Carl Jung, one of the things I remember he felt that therapy was meant to do was to circumambulate the psyche, you know, just yes. one way of kind of peering within and uh, introspecting. And based on our conversation, I said, you know, it'd be really helpful to have you talk to the seniors. This was last year. And I just remember, you know, how you led with vulnerability mm -hmm. and how you led with a lot of transparency and honesty was something that they really needed uh, to hear from someone that was not quite a peer, but just, a, you know, a few years older. Um, and I think you're going to bring the same sort of critical and creative and vulnerable perspective into yeah. into this phenomenon so i'm looking yeah. forward to it it definitely i mean i remember coming in and, and talking with the class and you know i wish i had more time of course but because as soon as you getting you know get, mm -hmm. get into the topics it seems like time's up but um yeah like being vulnerable and letting those walls down it takes just one person and i, I notice the students immediately 
you know, wanted to do that as well. They right. reflected that and they said, oh, you know, and so we opened up the conversation. We're talking more about like these, you know, harder topics. Right. It just takes that one person to, you know, allow themselves to open up. And that's what vulnerability is. You allow yeah. yourself to be judged and rejected, but also it's like trust the, you know, the layer. So right. I trust you with this. Um, I know I talked about some sensitive topics with them. Yeah. And I trusted them to know hold it safely sure and they did that and that builds but it requires vulnerability at the core of it and oh yeah it was i I really enjoyed it so i think that that's what we'll be getting into today too yeah for sure and i think vulnerability is definitely something that uh is lacking within this phenomena Mm -hmm. of of irony poisoning that uh, we'll get into so this is a a great segue so the, the article uh, there was a New York Times article uh, maybe a year and a half ago or somewhere around there that, that was talking about irony poisoning. It's not, uh, there's no particular theories on it. Uh, it's not really, it doesn't seem to be in academic journals, but these journalists were saying that they were really noticing this phenomenon. Basically, irony poisoning, as they were defining it, is this um, you know, ironic detachment mm-hmm. uh, that a lot of heavy social media users can have. It starts as jokes and so forth, and they become a little too ensconced uh, within that ironic detachment. Uh, and as a result, uh, their offline behavior can also sort of follow suit. So that's sort of the softer version of it, how they defined it. Yeah. And then there's this harder form where what starts out as joking and this kind of ironic detachment can sometimes be a slippery slope into actually then embodying those beliefs in particular ways. So some of the examples they mentioned, I know that you have a range of examples as well, which I found fascinating because I'm just not a heavy user of social media, uh, is apparently a lot of teens became to really love September 11th jokes, which mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting. I had no idea that was even the case. And then vaping culture, which of course is something sure. that's in the news quite a bit. Um, so it really was meant to be sort of a performance of irony. You're not supposed to really like it. And people that became addicted, you didn't wind up doing it in social media, but you're supposed to sort of show like, aha, look, I'm just joking. joking right. To clarify. Um, and and yet, if you actually have that addiction, then you kind of do it behind closed doors, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought were two intriguing examples. And since our conversation, you kept on sending me a range <laughs> of other examples of it so yeah. that you were confirming, no, no, this is actually a phenomenon that you were well aware of to begin with. It's real. It's real. And um, I think this is a good time to share some examples. Yeah. Difficult. Um, I'll do my best. But so this is just from Instagram um, and Twitter. Um, one guy posted, he said, I forgot you can't make depression jokes outside of Twitter. My coworker was like, you ready for this year to be over? And I said, I'm ready for this life to be over. I mean, it's it, like the, the funny thing is it does is meant to elicit a joke, mm-hmm. but underneath that, if, there's you, you know, if, if there's this underlying truth yeah. at which you seem to be conveying that people aren't just joking. Right. You know, a lot of them are. So I think that that's a great example. And another one, it says, Alexa, schedule me a lobotomy. (laughs) And the thing is, it's not just one person, you know, saying this. It's the Twitter and social media. It's people are reposting it. Right. And they're liking it. And they're resonating with it. And it's this um, really easy way to detach from what's going on inside. And you're projecting... Um, a joke and to say that everything's fine, you know, but 
you can't really face the pain or the loneliness that's going on and that's the root that's the truth behind this ironic humor and what's fascinating with this phenomenon is that you know a lot of people feel the same way and a lot of people feel this type of pain or grief that they're right. carrying and they'll hide behind these jokes and detach and the slippery slope is the more you make these jokes the more yeah. you detach um, because that's their worldview, yeah. it shifts into a new worldview, a new worldview and a new reality to where that's all you see. Right. And what we were just talking about is you find, okay, your tribe and the people that you connect over with this. Yeah. And those are the ones you're going to stick with. It's this, you know, kind of like depression humor and these really dark issues that you find other people resonate yeah. with that you're going to surround yourself with For and sure. that's just going to be your worldview and the reality you, you create. Well, it sounds like it's not just depression humor, but in some cases suicidal mm -hmm. humor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, joking about things that just like that, that one you, you had mentioned. Uh, you know, one of the, I guess the questions, and you're sort of alluding to this, is, well, I guess one you are confirming that this is a phenomena that you see, I guess, without probably doing any kind of serious polling, if you were to estimate just based, not through, not solely through social media, but through interactions with peers, what back in the high school days and college and, and obviously afterwards, what percentage approximately do you think people fall prey to some of this kind of humor again it could be in the mm -hmm. soft form it could be in the you know the more extreme versions anywhere in between i mean i i could say probably like 60 or 70 wow, like really? high because it's not just what you're saying it's not just social media but yeah. it's also um you know comedy skits right and other things that we're exposed to and the percentage I think is so high because part of it's subconscious too. Right. We not we aren't aware that we're you know really facing this type of humor or like this ironic humor. Um, we can just be picking it up subconsciously, and that gets ingrained, and we're not aware of it. But then we feel it. Our body, right. you know, mm. our, our neurons are able to process that, and it'll manifest in some other way. Um, but. Yeah, I think I think the percentage is really high, wow. and it's not that you know like we're seeking it out sure. to go out and we're googling irony posts yeah. and jokes, you know, or, or yeah. memes about suicide. It just comes up, and it's yeah. this information overload that we're exposed to, and we have to sift through it and figure out what do we want to align ourselves with because that's our vibrational energy, you know, it's what we surround ourselves with, and if we're reading these things every day, it becomes. Yeah. what what we see and we're gonna you know kind of pick up on that more and we're gonna find things that fit the opinion we've shaped you know yeah so i do think it's high i, I mean do. that's that's staggering in a way yeah it sounds like a real pandemic that's you know i guess maybe in your generation it's known but in some cases it might be unconscious it might not be something that people have consciously labeled or even mm -hmm. perceived as a problem it could just be i'm just joking yeah uh and then i think the older generations are in many respects clueless uh to what's happening because their social media use even if they're high users is in a different orbit right in a way Completely so, so, so they're not, not intersecting yeah. and therefore not um Seeing that, you know, it reminds me of, and I think we had talked about this once, this Radiolab episode called In the Dust of This Planet, mm -hmm. which was basically talking about this ethos of nihilism. Like, is there this ethos of nihilism that's pervading 
today's society and culture. Um, and I think that there's a lot of interesting correlations. So, of course, when people say things are meaningless, then, uh, then you're kind of detached. How do you interact with, with life if, if there's no point to it? Right. And, and a lot of it seems to be this ironic stance uh, is the appropriate response. Um, kind of this mentality, if I recall uh, the, the episode, is people were like, yeah, we're going to die, but I'm not afraid. You know, there's this yeah. sort of fatalistic mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, We're just living to die. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways. Like, there's nothing creative or mm-hmm. collaborative that we can achieve. At best, we can just have this disposition where it's like, yep, yeah, we're all fucked. But, hey, yeah. it doesn't bother me. Nope. In fact, I can even joke about it. You know, this kind of twisted gallows humor. Yeah, no, so. and I've seen things about, like, oh, you know, I, I woke up another day. Like, bummer. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's like you're just, you're just waiting to die. Right. You're just killing time. Yeah, and you, you yeah you, you find those things that are are meaningless, and it's um it's it's sad because you surround yourself with that. You're you're gonna want to seek other people who who feel that too yeah. because that's your opinion, right? And it's yeah. Well, and one of the data points that I've come across uh, the last year or so is from uh, Bill Damon, who's an adolescent psychologist at Stanford. And he was saying the real challenge growing up today isn't stress, it's meaninglessness, mm. uh, which I think is pretty interesting. And again, that correlates to some of the, the things that you're saying, what this article talks about, and even the sort of ethos of nihilism that might be pervading the culture, which is interesting when I read that or listened to that episode, um, I was left feeling, is it really that pervasive? And then it sort of, and they made the claim that it did seem to sort of capture uh, the spirit of the times, and yet it was largely under the radar yeah. in a way. Like most people would not say in popular culture, on the news, that we're living in this sort of nihilistic era. No. Uh, and yet maybe under the surface, people kind of feel a little unmoored and the sense of what is their direction in life or what is the point of this all. Um, so, I think we're. Yeah. I, I think um, because it, it seems so under the surface, it's this perfectionism that yeah. um, our culture promotes, and this what I was saying is like this hustler mentality mm-hmm. and to keep going and overachieve um, the pressures we feel and that we're not enough, mm-hmm. and so we hide behind you know the highlight reel and right. we're projecting you know, everything's fine, everything's you know perfect. I'm really happy. Um, and because of like Instagram and pictures, we can add filters, we can alter reality to where it's not even reality anymore. (laughs) And then people are comparing themselves to that and they're like, Oh God forbid I let someone know that I'm not doing okay. And so we, so that's what's projected, but under like, we all feel this This is what sociology Mm -hmm. taught. We all feel this. We're all exposed to the same spectrums and we all feel this sense of, Okay, what's my purpose? Right. And you know, what is this for? And so that's why I think it's so like insidious right. is because we really that's what we really feel. We really wonder, you know, what our purpose is and we're trying to find that. We're trying to find what gives us life and passion. But we're also projecting at the same time, I have it figured out. Right. I'm perfect. Everything's fine. And it's like that paradox and right. having those two um, battle at the same time. It's right. it's it's just like um, it's a storm, and it's it's trying to, f- to figure out where does you know the one start and the other begin. Right. 
Yeah, I think that's interesting. This and maybe some of the contributing factors, like you were alluding to, is this sense of perfectionism, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I wonder on one hand, is there any kind of explicit ideology in the West? We're saying that that's everyone's aim. Is it somehow in the water? Right. Um, But but I think that uh, the younger generation, to a greater extent, perhaps than, than, than my own, really do feel um, this need to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And, and it's amazing to see students and youth and uh, other people that um, seem to be objectively you know, quite successful and balanced, and yet internally there's a misery because they're not somehow achieving this Greek ideal of, <laughs> of, like, yes. uh, of, of perfection and power and domination or something, which just, it's an illusion. Mm-hmm. And I guess, uh, you know, just to unpack that a little bit more, what are some of the contributing factors, in your opinion, of what's leading to people to feel a sense of meaninglessness, this, this rudderlessness, um, and as a result, maybe the only way of coping is to detach in an ironic fashion? What, what is your... I think it goes back to this projection of perfectionism and it starts in the households and the pressures that you feel growing up. Um, so Carl Jung, he had this, um, he had the four archetypes and one archetype was the shadow side. So you have yourself, the persona, the shadow, and then the animus anima. And the shadow is what's kind of deemed as undesirable. The things that make us truly human it's our dark side and these are a lot of the thoughts that we see with irony poisoning um and it's part of who we are and until we accept that we're a human we're a human that is capable of severe like evil and damages we'll never really know who we are and it'll manifest in ways of depression, anxiety, addiction, abuse, because we shove it down and we don't want to face it. And I think it starts with the parents to where if the parents don't do what it's called shadow work, if they don't face their own inner demons and things that society had deemed as undesirable and which they packed away in a bag behind them and they dragged it throughout their life, they're going to put that onto their child. They're going to project it onto their child as... You know, I didn't, I didn't get into this Ivy League school. Right. But that's really important to me, so I'm going to make sure my child gets into an Ivy League school. Yeah. Who knows if it's important to them, but it's important to me. And we don't stop to really ask, yeah. what do you want? And so by the time you, you know, we reach high school, and that's what we're talking about with your philosophy students, by the time we reach high school and we're going into college, everyone's like, okay, well, what do you want? Yeah. But it's not truly sitting with what do you want. Yeah. It's... Trying to, you're trying to cancel all the noises and other voices you've yeah. heard throughout your life to where you don't even know what your own voice right. is. And so we know that the only way out is through. And that means you have to go inward yeah. and really sit with yourself and learn who you are. And this is part of it. It's the shadow side. It's, it's the work um, that we all allude to, the work that we have yeah. to do. And we have. I think the millennials feel this sense of meaninglessness at this peak because throughout their entire life it's been someone else's projected onto them it's been someone else's dreams or someone else's goals and they're never seen as almost equal you know um it's you're a child i'm an adult so i'm going to treat you like a child 
I'm not going to come down to your level. And sometimes it's metaphorically just kneeling down with a child yeah. and being like, okay, I'm going to show you, you, you have decisions right. and you can form a path all your own and you can shape your world, yeah. you know? So I think it starts in the households with parents really, you know, treating their child, yeah. not like a child, but someone like giving them the tools yeah. and it's being like, this is what's going to happen. Here's here's the outcome of maybe this decision or, or here how here's how this can go, but you get to decide and that's empowering. Right. So it's very, um, it's, it's very messy, you know, it's like this ball and where do you start? Yeah. I, th- I think that there's a lot, a lot to talk about there. A couple of things that, that captured my uh, imagination and attention mm-hmm. were this idea that there's so we live in. It's not just the educational system, but I think the culture in general. There's so much. There's so many carrots and sticks. So much extrinsic motivation of what people should be doing, mm-hmm. but very little time to go. What intrinsically motivates you? Yeah. What are you intrinsically interested in? And as a result, I think there's this loss of autonomy. I mean, there's this arms race to get into college. There's mm-hmm. global competition, and God. so. Uh, obviously, at you know college prep schools, you're going to feel a little bit more, but I think everyone feels it to a degree. And there's not as much time to play and to explore. Who am I? Mm-hmm. What what naturally kind of do I like to do with my free time? Uh, I think more and more uh, teens have have less and less of that, uh, oh, which I think is a contributing factor. And then I thought the interesting part about not being able to face the shadow side, uh, not to say we've ever been great at that as a culture, <laughs> right. but um, you know, I do think that in, in a lot of different ways, uh, to be able to address a lot of the different global challenges, that is unique. Uh, I think maybe my generation, uh, the Generation X, with the advent of MTV and mm-hmm. video stores, and all of a sudden you slowly ha- started having cable news where you got this global perspective. See it, now yeah. we're aware, 24-hour news cycles, there's so much going on, a lot of what's conveyed is the negative. So how do you make sense of all that when it feels like the apocalypse has struck? Um, how, how do you feel about it? Do you feel a sense of hope, a sense of despair? There's almost not even the time to even have process. the space to process yeah. it. So I think that's part of it. Never mind your own conflicting or darker feelings. So, so I think that's interesting. And then the other thing that I'll mention that, um, as you were saying, the only way out is through. It reminds me of this James Baldwin quote, the African-American writer, very, very critical thinker in 20th century. And he said, not everything faced can be changed, mm. but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Mm. And he was, I think, really looking at racism, institutional racism, but I think it can be applied Compliant. to so many yeah. contexts. And, and we were talking before we hit record just about that phenomena, just to have the vulnerability and the courage to look yeah. at what's happening within our own psyches. Um, another story that I think talks about the, the power and the importance of being able to not only look at the shadow side, but how that can actually help transform and develop our capacities and help us grow. Buddha gave uh, a famous uh, flower sermon. Once, so he didn't give any words. He uh, held up a, he pulled out a lotus mm-hmm. from this pond. And so lotuses are symbols of enlightenment, but he pulled it out and it's out of this mud. And so the lotus is this pristine white flower, seemingly untouched by the mud uh, that it grows from. And so he pulls it out, roots and all, it's dripping with money, just holds it up in 
front of the crowd. And most people are probably scratching their heads like, what the heck is Buddha doing? (laughs) Um, But but one of his disciples, Maya Kashapa, smiles. And that's supposed to signal that he understood and he had a Kensho or moment of enlightenment. Um, And Zen actually traces its lineage back to that transmission. And Mm. and there's a lot of things that it can mean, but I think one of them, just even from a biological standpoint, the lotus doesn't grow in spite of the mud, but because Mm. of it. And and Beautiful. yeah, yeah, and I think, and even furthermore, we we know that you know a lot of what if people are in agricultural societies, even gardeners, what actually helps plant growth? Manure. Manure. Yeah. You know. Shit. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think that that is also a very powerful metaphor. Our shadow side is the manure for our psyche. It is. And, you can't yet, integrate into yourself. But we don't think that. We mm-hmm. think it's the opposite. We live within this sort of um, fantasy that if we could somehow eliminate all that's negative and dark and shadow-like from our life, then life would be great and just collect what's positive and light. But that's not reality. It's like assuming that one could have day without night. Right. Uh, you know, they, like they both come together. Sun, they define light, each dark. other. Yeah. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, it's not, so our, our problems within that, that schema are just nonsensical because that's not a reality. So I think what you're saying is how do we create a culture where not only we recognize that that's part of who we are, but that's the path forward. It is. It is like that old alchemical ideal of transmuting base metal into gold. Yeah. Which is not maybe literally going to happen unless you're a star that's creating stellar nuclear fusion. But but for the rest of us, I think it can happen psychologically. Exactly. And yeah, so I think that that's such a really important and profound point. And I guess what would you say from your experiences are ways that your generation in particular might be able to recognize that, you know, it's not something to get rid of, but it's something to embrace in some capacity. It's a part of who you are. I mean, I I think it just keeps coming back to, because we have so much information, um, there's, it's easier to go negative with it. It's easier to go, okay, we're exposed to all of these, you know, the bad images right. or things that we, we wouldn't want, you know, our kids to see. But there's the other side of it where, okay, people have platforms to where yeah. we know the information can get to these kids or they can get to people who are feeling, you know, anxious. Right. Um, so I think because there's more information, um, we have like Brene Brown who's talking yeah. about vulnerability and shame. And she's creating these books and TED Talks and podcasts. We have... Audibles. I mean, we can listen to yeah. listen to books all the time, and um, it's it, it's starting with these like difficult conversations and knowing that it's okay. Right. Um, but there, there's a what you were saying about the light. There's a really good quote: um, "The closer you walk towards the light, the greater your shadow is." Mm, yeah. To where it's it's like right. It's gonna be. It's it's gonna break at some point, and you're going to have to face it um, to the it, it's part of who you are and you're never going to know your true self unless you fully integrate it into um, everything in your life and everything that we face bullies um, a bad breakup it, it's necessary for us to become who we're supposed to be right. and but you're right it's like how do we see that how do we how do we shape that um, mindset when right. something bad happens to us instead of taking this, you know, um, fatalist or meaningless, or here's another example yeah. of why things, you know, are, are worthless or, or why I shouldn't be alive. 
like why do you how how do we shape that to where no this is why i'm alive this is making me it's propelling me forward to who i'm supposed to be right and it's only gonna you know drive me forward on this path of purpose yeah like where does that start right you know yeah i mean those those are the important questions and it reminds me that in addition to Brene brown who i think has really helped move the needle around the importance of vulnerability and i have yet to see her netflix special but i think that you know that's great that in addition to ted talks there's uh popular ways that she's broadcasting uh, the, mm-hmm. the power of these ideas. So I imagine it's getting to a pretty wide audience for people that are open and interested. And for some, it might be a random, oh, who's this? Click. And then, whoa, this is, I've never even thought about it. There is a pretty popular book that came out about a year ago called The Culture Code, mm-hmm. which is really fascinating by Daniel Coyle. And he's basically asking the question, what do all great cultures, organizational cultures have in common? From and he and he did a lot of research and interacted with great cultures like at Pixar, San Antonio Spurs, and yeah. Seal. So kind of wide ranging, um, but are all of these organizations really known outside of the organizations for being able to consistently produce a certain amount of greatness, and people enjoy being a part of those cultures too. Right. So what do they have in common? There's three factors. The first is psychological um, safety. Which mm. makes a certain, you know, certain amount it of does. sense. It's a safe space. The second one is vulnerability. <laughs> you know, so you have to create that psychological safety so people can be themselves. Yeah, you have to hold space for someone else and allow. Yeah. And and then the third one is purpose. So there's a collective sense of purpose. Um, and those three things, as simple as they are, it's so hard to line those up. And I think with psychological safety and vulnerability, most people are going to say, "Yeah, that's that's important. We do that." But it's really interesting the amount of people that uh, in the various organizations I've worked for, the amount of people that actually hold back and don't feel they can be honest because of fear of retribution Mm -hmm. and how much there's a disconnect between that feeling and then people that are managing unaware that there's even those feelings. Like, oh yeah, we do it all the time. And it's like, no. You know, and, and, and so I think those are some of the, the challenges because there's blind spots and what are the ways that, um, and I think the only way that things can sort of be rectified is how do you really open up the channels for communication? Yes, the and, dialogue. And knowing that unless people are bringing up anger, frustration, depression, if you don't hear any of that within your organization, it's pretty safe to say that uh, people aren't feeling very vulnerable They're and not. psychologically You're... safe. Exactly. And it doesn't mean it should be a, a place where all of a sudden, you know, mud is being thrown around. Yeah, thrown yeah. around. Like, that's not the point. But we are humans and we experience the spectrum of emotion. And, and it's important to be able to appropriately voice those things. I mean, yeah. it can easily reach the point of just griping or you just want to complain and that's not the point. So it's like honesty without kindness is cruelty. Right. So there's a, you're right. There's a way to be honest and to have a safe space for someone, but without a kindness or some type of compassion and empathy, it's just going to be seen as cruel to where they're going to close off. They're not going to talk about it again. And that's what being vulnerable is. Or like, you know, when I came and talked to the class, it's like sharing something about yourself that's, you know, you're opening right. yourself up to being rejected and a loss because that's what we right. do. We associate, um, you know, 
with that. And so Brene yeah. Brown, she talks about if you can't experience joy, you know, you're dress rehearsing tragedy to where it's, yeah. if you can't sit with joy and allow yourself to feel that because you're just expecting it to be taken away from you, you're never going to, um, you know, know that feeling. And we're always like expecting other shoe to drop. And so it's, you know, you open yourself up and it's like fully surrendering to that. Yeah. And when you're met with a safe space, a psychologically safe space, you're it, you're going to feel validated. You're going to feel seen, and you're right. going to like, okay, I can keep doing this. I can keep talking about it and working through it, yeah. to where it doesn't become a monster anymore. It doesn't become something that seems so debilitating, yeah. and you're like, oh, I'm crazy. You know, I'm crazy for this, or something's wrong with me. Because right. you're right, we're all exposed to the same spectrum, and the same you know psychological triggers um some of us are just you know more attuned to different ones and they hold you know more meaning than others but we all feel that and we're just waiting it's like we're just pleading for someone to talk about it first right or to just talk about i mean i saw how many hits you know certain videos get on youtube or netflix uh, these documentaries or podcasts about you know, these types of topics. And it's like, people want to talk about it. You know, people want to face it, but they don't want to be the first ones. Well, that's it. And I think that really shows a certain amount of courageous leadership Mm -hmm. is being able to not just lead with the sense of power, um, that everyone's ready to follow them, but hopefully follow their example, which is leading with that vulnerability. And I think that you did that really well when you came to talk to the seniors last year. Um, you really did lead with that, and I think as a result, the whole the whole dynamic of the room shifted. Yeah, you people feel became it. much mm-hmm. more focused, interested, and I think that in in some respects, I think a handful were staying afterwards, wanting to really just ask yes. you questions. Yes, in a lot of interesting ways, get your advice uh, in a similar way. This curriculum that I think we briefly talked about that I've been teaching. Uh, called Project Wayfinder. Yeah. It's about fostering purpose in the lives of, of teens. And the way that purpose is defined is uh, being able to create goals that are meaningful to the self and consequential to the world, so it's not just about you. And a huge part of this uh, work, these activities, which are really great, you know, drawing on brain science and developmental psychology and a range of other fields, um, is so it's really compelling but in order to introspect to know yourself you have to be able to be vulnerable and then to share out with in small groups in a large class like it does there's a certain amount of risk Mm -hmm. and i think that you what i've really discovered is you can't expect students to do that if you're not willing to do it if you're the one facilitating it so there always requires some degree of me sharing my process right. in appropriate ways yes um, because that's at least modeling that hey I'm doing this work too this is ongoing I haven't figured this stuff out if anything I just have a little bit advantage of time um, right. and I never had this kind of curriculum when I was young so there was a lot of kind of grit and gut instinct yeah, and a yeah. tremendous amount of you know going down wrong wrong lanes and <laughs> finding out but uh, but yeah, I do think that that's you know so important, and hopefully these kind of conversations and the work that Brene Brown's doing, and just even the signals being sent, hey, great cultures really foster vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, how can you truly work together if people aren't being real? You can't, and I mean, that's you, you can't. I mean, we model behavior. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, so that's like what you're doing as a teacher, and you're showing your students that you know I'm doing it too. And yeah. it's it's not just you, and I'm not. It's like 
the parent and the child, I'm not above you. Right. You know, I'm not above this. Right. Um, I'm going to get down on, on your level. And we, we pick up on that. It's, we just want to feel like a part of something, a tribe. Right. And I think because we've gotten so much bigger, you know, there's that magic number to where we're all connected within this tribe. We're all doing, we're sharing the same workload. We're all, um, being exposed to one another and right. talking to one another and things are changing. We have this impact and we're able to change, you know, politics because we're so big. I think we're losing that type of connection with one another right. and we don't have these conversations because we don't see each other or right. we're hiding behind our phones yeah. and we don't check in, you know, with our parents and our parents know what's going on yeah. with us because they never see us. Um, there's, there, there's just, yeah. there's, it's so big now to where, we're, we don't have the connections that we like primarily want and, right. and we need. And a lot of that is, I think, subconscious yeah. too. You know, there's this primal instinct within us that we don't see all the time, but we feel it. And emotions are like data points. And it requires us to be really aware and um, being able to sit with them. And so that's what I found anyway the last few years is you know, these emotions come up and it doesn't mean it has to define you. Right. So like these thoughts come up with the shadow side. It's like, we're going to have these, you know, somewhat, you know, questionable thoughts. And we, we notice it could pop up and we're like, Oh my God, did I just say that? Or it's like, I can't believe I thought that, you know? And it's like, okay, it doesn't mean it has to define you, but right. you have to honor that you thought that and let it pass. And it's just a data point. And that's what we have to understand for ourselves in order to understand the world around us and like right. okay this is a data point this is this person reacted this way out of anger probably because of you know they, they felt resentment or they were hurt and so the more we understand what we're feeling we're able to recognize human across the table with us and i mean that's probably why you know the culture code looked at the spurs and it's like why you know why were right. they getting along so well yeah and this is part of it. Well, and part of it, there was actually this article that, that came out uh, sometime in the last six months about Popovich, the coach of the Spurs, mm -hmm. how they would have, like, one of the, I guess, the secrets uh, to perhaps developing, developing the particular culture was these very lavish dinners. Um, mm -hmm. But it was a time for everyone to really connect and, and just make those personal connections with one another. And he would go around the other coaching staff. And yeah. not everyone has the the sort of bank account of the spur exactly but i think the idea is of really taking that time to socialize to uh, sit you know talk. families used to have meals together mm -hmm. uh, my family always are growing up and my current family does uh, but i know that that's a rarity it's sort of uh, it's becoming extinct and and i think if we don't take the time to connect in meaningful and playful ways uh, and check in then how is it going to happen uh it's all yeah. going to seem meaningless. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, you know, one of the things I'm curious about, um, because, you know, we're, we talked about your generation within the context of, uh, want to, let's see, they want to clean the room up. It's all good. There's a lot of activity going on at campus. Construction, construction yeah. sports. Kids running around. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, the heavy machinery stopped just as we hit record. Yes. So, um, we don't have soundproof anymore. All this right. is life, but we're going to adapt. So, <laughs> the question that I had, 
you know, looking at some of the challenges of your generation, like in terms of this ironic detachment, and I think for my generation and older, there's often this a lot of criticism that's leveled um, sort of below, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's not a lot of self-reflection, like what are our challenges? What are some of the challenges, but what are some of the strengths of your generation, the millennial generation? I think the challenge, I'll, I'll start with the challenges, is this information overload. Um, we're, ex- it's like we're exposed to so many opportunities and we see, I-, I could be doing this, I could be doing this. And so that's why we fill our schedule. And it's like, we're constantly chasing this. It's this fulfillment trap right. of what, when I have this job, I'll be happy. Or right. when I get married, when, 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 right. and we're never present with who we are in the moment. And right. so by the time we're however old, it's, it's all, it's all gone. And we're never, it's, it's a trap. It's a cycle. We're never going to find that fulfillment because happiness is an external. Right. And so I think that's a challenge, but a strength is we're resourceful. I think because we've had to navigate all of these resources, we have to figure out some form of efficiency. And we recognize certain platforms that are created in this generation um, because of the information overload, we can get information out there quicker to where, um, you know, we're Snapchatting or we're posting, we're reposting. And this could be beneficial for like a political campaign. Right. Um, it, it, in the right hands, it could get shaped positively for, you know, some the therapy mm-hmm. for kind of talking about vulnerability, talking about shame, talking about things that are difficult. Um, but being that first person to put it out there, it's, Mm. I think that's, it's just shaping the narrative. It's shaping social media and technology. It's inevitable. It's here, you know, and we have to Mm. accept that, but how do we, um, make it something that's beneficial? Right. So uh, there's a lot of strengths. You're right. It's easier. It's easier to go negative right. <laughs> than it is to talk about strengths. Um, I think a challenge is because we are, you know, it, it is so easy to hop on a phone or text someone. Um, we're not making as many connections or having those interpersonal skills of talking to one another and having to do that in the world. Um, you know, we can hide behind computers, but I think it's also I, I, I see this trend of being able to talk about mental health and being about able to talk about these issues more. And I mean, Netflix has a whole series on anxiety and brain disorders, you know, it's, so it's interesting. It's interesting to see at the same time that it's, even if it seems kind of underlying this, this topic, it's coming out to the surface. So maybe with some of the media, uh, the various platforms, it's helping to, uh, change the stigma mm-hmm. um, around whether it be mental health or whether it be just depression or just difficult emotions or the shadow side to where rather than something to be avoided, you're like, hey, guess what? Everyone else is just like you yeah. that experiences these uh, you know, tough emotions and has a shadow side. There might be a spectrum as far as uh, you know how far down that rabbit hole some people are willing to go exactly uh, but 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 it's something we all share and, and one of the things i like that you were mentioning about the resourcefulness of your generation i think every generation has some degree of that but it's going to be different because the conditions and the environments shift and change yeah and clearly the environment 
that you have is not just physical now, but it's virtual mm -hmm. in a way. And I think that's fascinating. Uh, one of the ideas that really inspired me, there's a book by Stephen Johnson called Where Good Ideas Come From, and it's sort of a natural history of innovation, mm -hmm. understanding what are the kind of environments that, um, that foster innovation. And what he's basically saying is that innovation is a result of uh, bricolage, this French term which is sort of found materials. It's like innovation happens by finding things in your environment and stitching it together, cross-pollinating. The cross-pollination of ideas. It really is. It yeah. could be, and it could be tools, ideas. So, so it's we can cast a pretty wide net in today's mm -hmm. world. And I think what you were saying is just that your generation kind of recognizes through this you know, bricolage, how do you stitch together various platforms, ways of conveying, communicating in, in capacities that people that have not just grown up in those environments, just it's going to be a little bit more foreign. And, and, and I think this is another interesting way of following this up, and, and you were really kind of conveying this, is so often as we look at irony poisoning, it, it seems it might be amplified by social media, which of course there seems to be in the news that social media is become this nemesis of yeah. civilization. Yeah. Um, it, it's like what's corrupting and corroding us. And, and I think there's a powerful argument for that. However, it's pretty lopsided. Mm -hmm. And so while that might be true, any tool can be used in multiple ways. You know, the printing press uh, can, you know, print War and Peace and the Tao Te Ching, or it can print Mein Kampf. You yeah, know? exactly. And, and so... <laughs> Um, so same with these particular tools. How do you see social media as an antidote to some of these problems? How can it be utilized so it's not just going to happen? But how can it be used to cultivate meaningful engagement, um, to foster connection, uh, a sense of perhaps purpose? How do you see the, the potential of these platforms to I make think a difference? This, I think this generation is also gifted with being open-minded yeah um and i think that causes a big split from you know your generation older generation yeah. and, and this one right <laughs> we're just it's, so cynical huh it's so cynical cynical and close-minded <laughs> like oh my god they're running around with you know like guys and guys holding hands like that's accepted you oh, know yeah. and we're open-minded about that right. and um i think because we find um, or, or someone finds that so important to them and they value that so highly, they're going to make sure someone else feels that. Right. And so social media is able, I mean, we can hop on and FaceTime with someone. We can, I've seen dogs go up for adoption in an, you know, online and get adopted yeah. in an hour wow. because like, this is so important to me. I want to make sure right. everyone feels it. Mm -hmm. And so I think being resourceful is, definitely a strength that we have um but i, I yeah it's it, it's it's difficult um not to to define that balance right. not to just have this irony poisoning but who, who's going to come up and find the other spectrum of it you know right. and find the, the positive behind it so that's i think that's the biggest challenge we're going to face is it's it's so easy to get consumed in the negative right but it's like this race, you know, like good and bad. There's no such thing as good and bad. There's so many great, so much gray area, but yeah. it's like the bad irony poisoning in a sense. We're talking about suicide behind these, you know, detachment mm -hmm. jokes or the good of like, oh, wow, there's an issue here. You're talking about yeah. suicide. There must right. be a deep rooted something. Let's talk about it in, yeah. in, in therapy. And totally. I know social media is able to, you know, people are able to access this counseling and therapy more readily. 
Um, I was telling you about this woman who has like a million followers on Instagram who quit her PhD and uh, her PhD job and, and doing in-home therapy to where it's all just on social media. Right. So she's trying to connect people with this. And we know that therapy is expensive. We know that there's also mm-hmm. a stigma of, you know, I can figure this out on my own. I don't need to go in and have right. someone else tell me about my problems. So, but who's, it's like, it's like a race, you know, yeah. it's which one's going to outweigh the other. Um, that's, yeah challenge yeah well as we we're also saying and i think that the chinese character for for danger is also opportunity mm-hmm. so it's interesting uh you know where of course everyone's familiar with the yin yang symbol yeah. kind of the symbol of taoism how the light and the dark are intertwined um and so naturally their language is going to convey some of that and it's so interesting how we wind up uh, creating these dualities and thinking that we can separate them. And so inevitably, if we look at, yes, it is a very challenging time, no doubt about it, most people would agree. Mm-hmm. However, do we see the opportunities right. uh, within those very challenges in the same way we were talking about the shadow side being um, maybe the path towards uh, towards growth and fulfillment, uh, being able to transmute the suffering and the darkness into into growth. Yeah. as Buddha was conveying in his silent flower sermon. So uh, it seems that, you know, we have, that's how I like to look at it. Nothing is given, uh, like the future is unwritten, but the more that we're able to see the opportunities and lean in with a little bit of vulnerability, mm-hmm. have these kinds of authentic conversations yeah. and be real. And there's so many ways to do it. Um, I think it invites others to do the same. And, and given that, this kind of ancient technology of language and communication uh, might be our best hopes uh, or the place to start from. Uh, it, it doesn't require uh, it doesn't require a specific kind of degree or highfalutin education. Exactly, uh, that, and that's and the so other thing. So it's available to everybody in a yes. lot of ways, and and that if the, if there can be the right kind of tipping point, then it can really spread like wildfire. So. So we all have a voice, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what I think is conveyed here. It's we all have a voice, and we all have, it's, you know, we're, we have an opinion. Yeah. But I think what the millennials bring is this open-mindedness to where, okay, you have your opinion, yeah. I have mine. It doesn't mean I have to adopt yours, but I'm going to use my tool of empathy and compassion to step into your shoes and yeah. to see it from your side. And that way I understand my neighbor better. Right. And that's difficult to do because we see it as you know, a personal attack a lot of the times, like, oh, you reject me. Right. But it's like, no, I just value, you know, what I have to say. Yeah. So it's, empathy is a huge tool as well that, Right. It is something I think it's, it's, um, Brene Brown talks about it's married with vulnerability. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that seems like a great place to both uh, start in life and also stop this conversation <laughs> yeah. leading with empathy leading so with that's empathy. great and, and again our conversations are wonderful and I could easily talk for another hour but I need to pick up my son so I can have family dinner and that's what we're talking about doing, and I support you know? that because I empathize with you <laughs> well, I appreciate it Sasha thanks so much thanks for having me here absolutely we'll do it again yes